Well, good morning again. It's, it's good to be with you guys. You know, most, most Sunday mornings, you, before you get up here and, and preach and things like that, you just feel some apprehension, some nervousness and stuff like that. But this morning, that just kind of melted away, and it's been nice for whatever reason. I mean, something, you know, just watch out above me or something, but I'll take it for what it is. It just, it's, it's a beautiful day, and I just, I'm glad to be here with you all. We had a wonderful time in, in Sunday school this morning, and as I mentioned, you know, it, it hit a lot of the same points that I'm going to be talking about, but it's, it's a topic that can be sensitive to a lot of people. It could be a struggle for a lot of people. You know, it's something that we have struggled with many points in our life, and that is the topic of authority. You know, it's a struggle in, it's been a struggle in my life in different areas as you face different things in life, whether it's at work or in the home or in friendships and things like that. And, you know, it can be something difficult. You know, we could just say the Sunday school answer of, well, Jesus has authority and let's just go home. But this is a struggle that I think that we need to really work through a little bit. And today, as we talk about this subject, I'm going to give some generalities but I'm not going to give you specifics, meaning I'm not going to tell you what you need to do because I want you to wrestle with this in your life. I want you to spend some time in prayer, you know, because authority, as we struggle with it, it can be in subtle ways. It can be in obvious ways. It can be in humorous ways. The issue of authority comes down to who we think is in charge. You think back to your childhood, there was probably a time where you tested or you challenged your parents to see who was in charge of the home. Hopefully you were put in your place. We go to work. We have bosses that have authority over us. If you are the boss or if you own your own business, we listen to our customers or to government regulations or to other issues. We get pulled over by the police, and we're told what we've done wrong. We're constantly bombarded with power struggles, no matter how small, throughout our days. And sometimes this can wear on us, because in our natural tendencies, we, we want to do what we want to do. We want to have authority over our own lives, you know? And, and again, we get, we get tastes of that wherever we can, and we try to fight for that. A little humorous story for us. There was a wife who confronted her husband one evening when he was reading the paper. Honey, put your paper down. What do you think of this hat? And he said, well, that's the most ridiculous hat I've ever seen. It doesn't do a thing for you. Take it back. Oh, I can't do that, she parried. This is my old hat. But since it offends you so much, I'll go down the store right away and get a new hat <laughs> to please you. Again, subtle and humorous, to get what we want. And you can flip the roles. It doesn't matter. We have these little micro power struggles every day for authority and control. As I said, this happens in many areas of our life where somebody can be over us. So as we begin today, I want us to think, how do we treat those with authority over us? Do we resent them? 
Do we try to subvert them, maybe go behind their backs, sow dissension? Do we listen and obey within reason or blindly? You know, I can remember working on the factory lines. Complaints were commonplace every day. What is this leadership doing? They don't know what to do. Of course, we could do the job better than they could, right? Grumbling, complaining. Children. Yes, all you in the back row. My son, thank you. How well do you listen to your parents? Ah... always fun catching your child on a screen it's a topic that does not escape our daily lives authority and then we transition this thought of authority to God we believe that God has all authority Jesus says in Matthew 28 all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me we believe this this gives us some assurance But how well is his authority really lived out in our lives? Do we only give it lip service and then continue to live in the way that we want to live, continue to live in rebellious ways? Or do we truly understand what his authority in our life means? This morning I want to look at a few passages. I want to finish up chapter 19 and then work our way into chapter 20 this morning, which is going to talk about the authority of Jesus. And I want to tie these attitudes to our own lives a bit as we examine this. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke 19. I'm going to begin in verse 45 and read through verse 18 in chapter 20. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When he came, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Father, as we go into your word today, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to this issue of authority. Convict us, Lord, of the, the errors in our ways and thinking and help us to align more with your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so again, uh, as I had talked about a couple weeks ago, as we approach these next few chapters, um, again, they're going to be covering the last week of Jesus' life, so it's going to be hard to find some of the breaking points. Uh, we'll try to do our best to make those connections from our pre- prior passages and things like that. Uh, the way that we end today is a case in point. You can continue to go on um, in those next few verses. Um, so you can continue to read through the Passion Week in Luke and study up on that a little bit as we go on. But if you recall, the last time that we, had, we talked about Luke, uh, was the triumphant entry and Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Now we find him in the temple, and he is driving away those from the temple who do not belong. Luke does not go into great detail here. He doesn't say that Jesus is flipping over tables or brandishing whips and driving people out. He just says he's driving out those who sold. Basically, the temple is turning into a marketplace. Um, it's a place of commerce because people are traveling to the temple. And you know, as the saying goes, location, location, location. If you've got a lot of traffic going by, that's where you put your stand. That's where you put up your wares to be sold. Um, So there's a lot of greed. There's a lot of selfishness coming in to the temple life now. It's interrupting their normal temple routines. And Jesus quotes from both Isaiah and Jeremiah in this statement. In Isaiah 56, um, he says this. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of the Israel declares, I will gather yet others to, to him besides those already gathered. Now in that, in that passage, normally it's only quoted for verse 7. Um, But I included verse 8 today because of the scope of our passages, and I think that it goes in well with the parable in terms of how the vineyard is going to be handed over to others. So again, context within some of these references even, reading around the context to know what's being pulled out is important. And then in uh, chapter 7, verse 11 of Jeremiah, it says this, "'Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes?' Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. So here Jesus is using two of these prophets who gave warnings, who gave reasonings for the the Israelites to go into exile, for the temple to be destroyed. Um, And the temple, it was to be this religious center. It was to be this house of prayer for the people of God. 
but it was turned into this marketplace. It was turned into something that lost its purpose, that lost its original um, meaning for the people. And, and Jesus, as he is driving these people away, um, it's a good reminder for us as an organization, as a church, to understand purpose. Why do we exist as a church? Why do you exist as a Christian? What is the purpose that you have? You know, are you reevaluating that time from time in your life to make sure that it is lining up with what God has for you to do? You know, maybe you've heard the saying that a company is only as good as its leadership, or a company is only as good as its uh, least paid employee. You know, sometimes the things that we're doing as people, as organizations, um, sometimes the purpose gets lost. Sometimes with turnover, meaning gets lost. Or we do things because it's always been done. Things become sacred cows. You, you hear that term maybe in, in churches. A sacred cow is something that is elevated above criticism. Something that is done in, in tradition that maybe has been done for the last hundred years, but really doesn't have as much meaning anymore. Sometimes churches hold on to those things as a way to say, this is the past and I want to hold on to it so tightly. And you lose focus of the original purpose. And it can be good things. You know, it could be VBS programs. It can be ministries. It could be choirs. It could be things, orders of worship. You know, anything that we're elevating above the purposes that God has given us. You know, so it begs the question, do you understand or know the purposes that God has given you as a Christian, as a church? You know, you think about these types of things and you look at how things can change over time. Normally, churches are pretty resistant when it comes to change. Normally, the arguments usually stem over carpet color or something insignificant but meaning because my great-grandfather built that pew and I don't want it to be gone. You know, it's simple things like that. Ideally, in a healthy church, you ask the question frequently, is what we're doing effective for the gospel message? But you know, more pertinent to this passage, as a church, as a Christian, are we doing things that Jesus would drive us out of the temple for? Do we want to answer that question? Because that would be a tough one. It's something to ponder, though. But we always want to understand why we're doing things the way that we're doing things. Obviously, we don't stray from the truth. But the means in which to relay that truth changes over time. A prime example of that would be when we had to go to Zoom last year. You know, we couldn't meet for a period of time. But using Zoom has allowed us to continue to reach those at home for those that are on vacation or traveling or things like that. You know, so it has, has benefited in that way. Another change that's honestly been big is the form of communications, texting, emails, phone calls. A lot more important in this day and age, in this fast-paced world, especially when we're at a church that has a 60-mile diameter. You know, you think about church in the old days. There was one church that was planted in the community and everybody would walk to that church. Just not where we are today. You know, we maybe have a handful of people that actually live in the city of Minden. 
But yet we service from Harlan to Council Bluffs to Trainer to Logan, a large area. So you have to change a little bit how you are doing different ministries. Discipleship changes. Sometimes we're working second shifts. Sometimes people work Sundays and they can't be here for church or Sunday school. So you have to try to meet needs and meet people where they're at in creative different ways. And again, you reevaluate and you assess, but you keep your purposes the same in terms of sticking to the gospel message, sticking to the truth, but how do we relay that truth? Those types of things need to be assessed. And again, Jesus is driving these people out because they're using the temple in the wrong way. He then sets up a camp there and begins to teach. He begins, begins to preach to the people. And again, this is the week of the Passover. These are the days that are leading to, to the crucifixion. And the people there are hanging on his every word. You know, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're stumped. They don't know what they can do because of all of this. And you look in verse 1 of, of chapter 20, and it says that Jesus is, is preaching the gospel. So within the context of Luke and what Luke is saying that Jesus is preaching, he's preaching about the forgiveness of sins. Again, piggybacking off of what John had started as well in his ministry. And, and the people are listening to what Jesus is saying. As he is doing this, these other people come up to him. They demand to know by whose authority, by what authority are you doing these things? These people would make up the Sanhedrin, your chief priests, your scribes, your lawyers, your elders. Um, this is the official ruling body of the, of the people. And they would have authority. You know, these questions, it would constitute an official inquiry into who Jesus was, whom he represented. You know, he had been preaching that he is coming to set up this kingdom. Well, who is the king going to be? Is this going to benefit us? Is this going to take us away from the oppression of Rome? Is this going to affect the authority and power that I have? You know, they're, they're asking all of these questions to see who Jesus is, perhaps trying to catch him in some sort of gotcha moment as well to get him as a blasphemer. You know, multiple times, he's almost been stoned. He's almost been pushed off of a ledge. They want to get rid of him. But these types of questions, by whose authority are you doing this? I think it's a common practice. I think that we ask the same thing in our own lives. We, we hear a rule or a law, and we immediately question the source. What are the credentials? How does this impact me? Why does this matter? Do I have to listen to it? You know, I think in America we're at a disadvantage. We're at a disadvantage because we are a nation born of rebellion. We have God-given freedoms. And we don't take authority too well. We're rebellious. We're strong-willed. We're defiant. This type of nationalism does not bode well to live under a king. And even as we might seem to have some more king-like laws or executive orders come down, we still don't understand what it means to live under a king. So if we have that disadvantage, how then do we relate that to living under the king? When our lives tell us to push back. You know, we say that God is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he has all authority. But do we live it out? 
Do we obey his commands? Are we still in rebellion? Do we still push back? Does sin still have some strongholds in our lives? You know, this week in one of my um, Bible studies, we were going through Zechariah. And in chapter 6, verse 7, it says, it says this. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And that line stuck out to me. You know, the context of this is God is sending out the chariots to the four winds to patrol the earth. And the angels were eager to do this. They were impatient. They wanted to serve God. And you think of angels, you think of the hierarchy. Right now, they're above us in hierarchy. And yet, they are tasked with serving us lower beings. Then you relate that to Jesus, who tells us to go be a servant. Purpose, purpose statement of a Christian. Go be a servant to those around you. Are we as eager as the angels to obey the authority of God? Do we understand when he gives a command that we are to go? Or do we grumble and complain? It's important to know the purposes of God. God is our authority and he gives us purpose. When we know who we are, when we know who God is and what we're called to do, we can be eager to serve him. But when we lack in that knowledge of who we are, when we lack in that knowledge of who God is, it can bring out some misunderstanding. It can bring out more complaining and grumbling. We challenge his authority by saying things like, yeah, I'm not the one that's going to go to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about this loving my brother, let alone loving my enemy thing that you talk about. Instead, I just want to resent them. I want to hate them a little bit longer. As I've been reading through Luke, it's become very apparent in my own life. So many times we want to compare ourselves to the disciples, to Jesus. More often than not, I need to compare myself to the Pharisees. How often is my attitude and heart the same as the Pharisees? The authority question from these leaders it would kind of lay things on the line for them. You know, this is, a, as I said, an official inquiry. And based on the answer that Jesus gives, those people would then have to believe what he is saying. They would be confronted with the truth, and they would have that responsibility to believe or to reject. You know, once you know the truth, you can't, you can't be ignorant anymore. It's, it just moves into the realm of rejection. They're asking this question of authority. But you also get the sense that they've already got their answer worked in their mind of what they want to believe. And I think that Jesus understands this. He knows their hearts. And he just does a common tactic. He answers their question with a question. You know, Jesus does this frequently. And it's like, okay, you say this, but let's, let's further define your terms more. How would you answer this? So I can see where your heart motivations are going to be coming from. It's a form of conviction to get them to think a little bit. And they pose this question back to them. Um, and, and the term, you know, where does John's baptism come from? Is it from heaven or from man? Heaven represents that the baptism would be coming from God. And here the leaders, they kind of expose themselves as they work through this question a little bit. Um, they just basically say that they didn't believe John. They didn't believe that he was from God. They didn't believe that um, he was who he says he was. 
You know, they opposed him, but the people followed him. And the leaders feared the possibility of being stoned if they had spoke out against John. You know, to be stoned in that frame of mind would be because you are falsely prophesying or you're speaking bad against a prophet or a person of God. So they, they choose the non-answer answer. And Jesus does the same. In a way, this is an affirmation of really where his authority is coming from. You know, they know the truth, but they don't want to say it because if they use their voice, that's going to put them in a, in a quandary either way. Again, I believe that they know the truth of who John and Jesus were, but they are just suppressing and rejecting that for the sake of their power, their authority that they're trying to hold on to. And really, this section was kind of telling for me in a couple of different areas that I'd like to share with you today. First, I have questions that I wrestle with. If the people loved John so much, if they thought that he was a prophet from God, why wasn't there an uprising when he was killed? Why didn't they try to go after Herod when he was killed? I mean, they ran out off the the prior leader, by going to Rome, and then Herod becomes the prefect? Was it that you could have a prophet be killed, and that's okay, but you couldn't talk poorly about them or besmirch them for some reason? Where was the heart of the people in that? Who claimed to love and believe what John was saying? In the same way, cry Hosanna to Jesus as he's coming in, but crucify him a week later. Secondly, the leaders of the Jews. Now, they have a responsibility to test the prophets that are coming from God. So on its face, they're doing what's in their job description to do. They're testing the authority that Jesus has. But their motives are suspect. They didn't really want John around because, you know, he was not elevating them. Instead, he was calling people to have less things, calling people to repentance, and he was calling them a brood of vipers. As for Jesus, his teachings are challenging what they're doing. They're challenging, he's challenging their power that they have in, in the temple, in the faith. So at this time, they're plotting against Jesus. Their motive's are already in their heart, it's already in their head. They're just looking for that gotcha moment, that aha moment, to finally say, there it is, and we can go forward with this. But they still have this position of authority. They have this responsibility to serve God and to serve his people. And they're kind of doing this. Even though they're claiming to have this authority, they're using it in a self-serving way. They hold a position within the temple. But when you really think about it, most of their authority that they use comes from Rome, not from God. Rome is going to be the ones that take care of Jesus, not themselves. When you get more to their heart issues, what does Jesus say about them in John chapter 8? Who is it that you are following it? Who is your father? Satan. You know, they're, they're about wicked ways, and they're leading the Jews astray because of this issue of authority, of control, of power. And in contrast to them, you have Jesus who is sitting there obeying the will of the Father, 
preaching the gospel message. Again, night and day difference between the two. And then Jesus gives them this parable. Again, this teaches about stewardship. It teaches about how they are mismanaging, how they're abusing the authority that has been given to them. It's a pretty easy parable to understand. As you look through that, the man who planted the vineyard, it's God. The vineyard would be Israel. The tenants would be the religious leaders. Now, the harvest or the expectation of fruit, this would coincide a little bit with the, the ki- kingdom of God and, um, and the people that are of the Israelites. We see how the owner sends um, these messengers, these servants to get the fruit. This would represent the prophets. And then he sends his son, obviously, for us, a connection to Jesus. I'm not sure if the religious leaders there would make that connection yet. Um, but then Jesus says in the parable this heart issue here, that the tenants would want to kill the son so that the land would be without an inheritor, perhaps thinking that the owner would just then give them the vineyard. Or in reality, they probably just think that the vineyard's already theirs. And Jesus calls out the consequence, that the owner would come and he would destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Again, going back to that verse in Isaiah and understanding how the Gentiles would receive the gospel message as well. Again, pretty easy parable to understand. Even the leaders would understand what Jesus is predicting, that God would condemn them, turn the nation over to other people. They would foresee that this would be the end of their authority, the end of the Jews, perhaps. And they say, surely not. Now, this has the same force and emphasis that Paul uses several times in the book of Romans, where he says, may it never be so. It's a double negation, so it's a strong negation. It's emphasized. And you think about surely not. What are they saying surely not to? What's the antecedent? I mean, I would hope that it would be surely not. We wouldn't kill the son. But given their track record, the surely not probably is more in line of surely not that God would give the vineyard to someone else because that's our land, that's our authority, that's our power. Again, they have selfish motivations. And even when you're thinking about what they're trying to hold on to, you go back up to the beginning of the parable, you go back to Genesis chapter 12, this vineyard is a gift. It is a gift given uh, by God, and they are just tenants. It is subletted out to them to take care of. It was never theirs in the first place. You know, the, the vineyard that they're controlling like theirs has a purpose. The purpose of the vineyard is to produce fruit. What is our purpose as Christians? What is our purpose as a church? Are we producing that purpose? Are we fulfilling that? You know, and within these thoughts, we also have to understand whom the vineyard actually belongs to. You know, when you look at how Jesus says that it's going to be given to others, obviously this would represent the Gentiles. It would represent the church. So now does the vineyard belong to the church? If so, which one? 
Does it belong to a certain denomination? What about certain people? Leaders, the Pope, theologians, scholars? No. Of course we wouldn't say that out loud. We don't say the quiet parts out loud. We understand that the vineyard belongs to the one who planted it. And I would say that we understand that God is the owner and we are just like the tenant farmers. But I come back to this again. Is he really the owner? Do we live like he is the owner? This is where the authority comes into play, where the rubber meets the road for us as believers. How can we say that God has authority in our life, but then live in an opposite way? How often do we act as if the vineyard belongs to us or to our particular factions or ways of belief? Can we be humble enough to admit our arrogances in life, our selfishness? Within this passage, I think verse 17 is probably my favorite. And primarily just for that first phrase, he looked directly at them. This, I imagine, is a look that just demands attention. It shows purpose, it shows intentionality. Looking into their eyes to emphasize, you pay attention to me right now. Parents, how often when we're disciplining our children do we say, look me in the eyes when I'm speaking to you because you need to understand what I'm saying to you. To look at somebody with that much intentionality is like he's looking right through your soul. And they would feel that conviction. I think of of Revelation when the people would try to hide from rocks so that they wouldn't see the face of the one sitting on the throne. Oh, surely not, Jesus. And then he looks directly at them. Really? You're not going to kill the son? Really? You're not fighting over this authority? Then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. This verse, this passage shows you know, how an apparently insignificant stone is then selected to be the cornerstone, a stone that the builders rejected. They say it's not good enough. Obviously, we understand this to mean that this cornerstone is Jesus, that he is the head of the church. He is the foundation. This passage further incriminates and indicts the Jewish leaders here. As it says in Isaiah 8, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You know, authority can be a stumbling block for many of us. And it's something that we need checked in our lives. Truly understanding what our purposes mean as ambassadors for him. To be servants to those around us. To love God. To love others. Proclaiming and worshiping him in all that we do. Being transformed into his image. And then be bearers of that image to those around us. All statements of generalities. 
that can be uniform. At the same time, distinct and individual to each one of us as God has purposed and gifted each one of us. Which is why I said this morning, I don't want to give you a checklist of things that you need to do to make sure that you're in with the authority of God. You know the higher purposes. You know the scriptures. You know what God calls us to do. But you also know your heart. You know where you're being shady. You know where you're going off in a different direction than what God has commanded you to do. And this morning, I pray that the Spirit would convict you in those areas. That you would come under his authority, submitting to Christ and his reign, his rule. Again, it's something that we all give assent to. Something that we can all say in our creeds or in our doctrines of belief. But what's actually lived out? Not when it's just on Sunday and we have smiles on our face, but through the week. How are we doing in these areas? My prayer is that we would improve how we are living this out that we're studying his word better, to know more of his will, to understand what that looks like in our life. My prayer is that the spirit would change us, that he would continue to guide us in all ways of truth. And my prayer is that we would obey his voice in those times of temptation. We know the truth. We can't feign ignorance. Once you know that truth, you have the responsibility to listen to it living a life that portrays who really has authority. My prayer is that we don't just say God this morning, but that we live it. It's not just words. He is the king. He is the one with power and authority. And he is the name that will be praised forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, so many times in our faith, we just trip over ourselves. We trip over our own ideals of power, of control, of selfishness. and gets in the way of faithfully serving you. So Lord, I just pray that it be less of me and more of you. Lord, as Paul says, help us to die to ourselves daily so that you may live. Lord, we are instruments to be used as vessels to take your word to the ends of the earth, even if it's next door. Lord, help us to be observant and aware. Help us to obey, understanding that you are the author and perfecter of life, that you are the king seated on the throne. To you we praise. To you be all the glory in heaven and on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.